I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to season two of Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. Last year, our episodes were played over 10,000 times to help listeners like you crush the PCS exam, and they did. This year, you can expect more content and even more review to help you feel confident on test day. Let's not waste any more time. Time to study. Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics or send us an email at pushingpediatrics at gmail.com. Welcome back to another Case Files Friday. We are nearing the end of our review on the Case Files book, so these next few weeks are the more random cases that didn't really fit in with an episode. They are still relevant and important for you to review. These more random ones may remind you of an area you haven't reviewed yet. Good news, you still have time to. The first case we will review today is a case on osteogenesis imperfecta, or OI for short. This is a fairly long case, so hang tight with us. Here it goes. A 10-year-old boy diagnosed with OI type 4 presents to an outpatient physical therapy clinic with his mother. The child had an unscheduled surgery eight weeks ago to replace the intramedullary rods of bilateral tibias after he stepped down off of a step and sustained a left tibial fracture in which the rod bent. Orthopedic surgeons decided to replace the right tibial rod at the same time to accommodate further growth of the tibia beyond what the rod was adequately supporting. The child initially had bilateral femoral rods inserted when he was four years old and tibial rods when he was six years old. He has typical features of OI, including deformities of the long bones, joint laxity, and short stature. He also has scoliosis and mild bowing of his femurs. He has a leg length discrepancy of three centimeters for which he wears a shoe lift. Bilaterally, he also has moderate radial bowing and lacks 20 degrees of elbow extension. Over his lifetime, the child has had more than 10 fractures, including vertebral compression fractures and fractures of the right femur, right tibia, left humerus, left radius, and left patella. Prior to the more recent surgery, he complained of bilateral ankle pain when ambulating more than a city block. The boy has been taking biphosphonates since he was three years old, but discontinued the drugs since his surgery. 
Although it is typically recommended to discontinue biphosphonate treatment several months prior to any surgery that entails osteotomies, this was not possible due to the nature of this unscheduled surgery. The child's family understands that bone healing may be prolonged due to this issue. The patient has a rear-wheeled walker and a lightweight manual wheelchair with elevating leg rests. Over the past year, he has relied more on his walker at home and school due to increased lower leg pain when weight-bearing. Previously, he only used the walker when walking outdoors or for community distances. He uses his wheelchair only as needed after a fracture or surgery. The child resides in a single-level home with two steps to enter. Before surgery, he was able to negotiate the two steps in a sideways manner using both hands on the railing. He was independent with all transfers, toileting, and bathing using adaptive equipment. The child was discharged from the hospital in bilateral above-knee fiberglass casts with bilateral lower extremity non-weight-bearing precautions. Although he was able to perform sliding board transfers with assistance prior to hospital discharge, His parents have been lifting him for transfers due to upper extremity pain during the transfer. The child was transitioned to below knee casts six weeks after surgery, though he still had non-weight-bearing precautions. The casts were removed two weeks later, and his orthopedic surgeon cleared him to begin mobilizing with physical therapy. Weight-bearing is tolerated wearing clamshell ankle foot orthoses. In the pool, he is allowed to bear weight without AFOs. The child arrives to the physical therapy clinic two days after cast removal. He has not initiated any weight bearing on his own. Due to marginal bone healing, he must use his walker for at least six weeks. At that time, the surgeon will evaluate a repeat x-ray and reassess weight bearing precautions based on bone healing. The physical therapist has been asked to evaluate the child's strength and readiness for weight-bearing and and progress pain-free lower extremity weight-bearing for transfers and ambulation. The mother gives the child an over-the-counter analgesic 30 minutes prior to the appointment in anticipation of discomfort with an increase in activity level. The therapist is familiar with this child from previous physical therapy episodes of care for fractures and rotting placement surgery. While the patient admits he is nervous to initiate weight-bearing activity, he appears calm. The patient's and mother's long-term goal, six months, is to walk without an assistive device in the home and at school. Their short-term goals, four weeks, are to complete independent standing transfers and to tolerate walking household distances using the walker. First, make sure you understand OI as a health condition. OI is an inherited disorder that affects type 1 collagen production. Type 1 collagen makes up the major connective tissue in the bones, ligaments, tendons, skin, dentin, corneas, and lungs. OI is complex and there are many different types, but briefly, individuals with OI type 1 produce normal collagen, but have a deficiency in the amount that is produced. Individuals with type 2 three and four have altered collagen formation that creates a deficient bone matrix. There are more types of OI, but most types are one through four. Characteristics of OI include low bone mineral density that results in fragile bones that fracture with little to no trauma, 
Most individuals also have bone deformities. Individuals with OI may exhibit joint laxity, weak muscles, blue sclera, poor dentition, hearing loss, easy bruising, excessive sweating, short stature, scoliosis, and fatigue. There are some medical things to be aware of related to OI. The standard treatment of long bone deformity is surgical placement of a rod through the intramedullary cavity of the bone. This helps stabilize and align the bone and can help decrease pain and reduce the frequency of fractures. Usually for six to eight weeks after surgery, the child will be immobilized in a splint or a cast. This surgery is also often repeated or revised, especially in children not yet skeletally mature. Another medical component to be aware of is the use of bisphosphonates. This is a class of drugs that inactivate osteoclasts, thereby decreasing bone resorption. The goals of these are to increase bone mineral density, decrease pain and fracture incidence, reduce bone deformity, and improve growth and mobility. They are recommended as an adjunct to orthopedic surgery and PT, not a replacement for these interventions. Also, they need to make sure to stop the medication before having surgery because they will delay surgical healing. Let's review physical therapy considerations for our specific case, the 10-year-old boy with OI type 4. For him, we want to improve lower extremity strength and endurance, progress standing tolerance and ambulation with and without an assistive device, maximize safe and functional independence, assist with return to prior level of function while minimizing the risk of fractures. Remember, this specific case is looking at post-operative function, which declined in this case. That is something definitely to consider when looking at your physical therapy considerations. Physical therapy interventions for this case would include gentle strengthening on the lower extremities, activities to progress standing tolerance with initiation in a pool if available, and progressive weight bearing on land, gait training, stair climbing, home exercise program, patient and family education on the importance of strengthening, and how to safely progress weight bearing in order to minimize fracture risk. Precautions in this population are important. Twisting, rotating, or forceful range of motion could cause a fracture. You want to make sure that you are always guarding closely during weight-bearing activities to decrease any chance for a fall or injury. Make sure you also review precautions or contraindications for OI across the lifespan. This case is specific, but there are also considerations in infants, toddlers, etc. There can be some things that interfere with physical therapy that you need to be thoughtful of. The patient may have discomfort with AFOs due to post-surgical swelling. Pain may limit activity tolerance. The patient or parent may have a lot of anxiety regarding potential fractures. And there may be upper extremity deformities and weakness that need to be considered with gait training and walker use. Let's review the evidence-based clinical recommendations. Rotting surgery decreases fracture reoccurrence in long bones and minimizes progression of bowing deformity in children with OI. This is grade A evidence. Biphosphonates decrease the fracture rate in children with OI. This is grade B evidence. The Wong-Baker Faces Pain Rating Scale is a reliable and valid tool to assess pain in children between the ages of 3 to 18 with a variety of health conditions 
This is grade A evidence and a good time to remember those outcome measures you should be studying. Aquatic therapy is an optimal modality for strengthening weak muscles while protecting fragile bones in children with OI. This is grade C evidence. That wraps up the case files for OI. Episode 11 from season one reviews the Campbell chapter on OI. So definitely go back and listen to that episode for a deeper review. Let's move on to case number 11, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Like our first case, this one is a long one, so hang tight. A 12-year-old male with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, or DMD, lives with his parents and sister in a split-level style home in a suburban town. He attends the local middle school and, when the weather is good, (laughs) drives home from school in his power wheelchair. He is a good student and is able to write his own class notes. He has an aide to help him at school as needed. American history stirs his interest and he enjoys politics. He is, an, he is a sports enthusiast. He and his parents make a great effort to allow him to participate in typical activities. He enjoys the benefit of swimming with an adaptive flotation device one to two evenings per week at the local YMCA and is an active member of the Boy Scouts. This young male is approximately 5 feet 9 inches tall and weighs 190 pounds. His bedroom is on the lower floor of the house that is accessible from the garage. There is a small bathroom shower on this floor, and the door frame has been widened to accommodate his wheelchair. He has a hospital bed, and the family's van is wheelchair accessible. He recently stopped ambulating following a femoral fracture and is becoming proficient in using a power wheelchair. He requires maximal assistance of one to roll, to sit up, and to perform a pivot transfer. He is able to sit at the edge of the bed with close supervision. Maximal assistance is required for dressing and toileting care. He is independent in the use of utensils during meals, but requires assistance to lift a cup with liquid. There is a hydraulic sling lift in the house, but it is usually in storage due to its size and appearance. He wears bilateral hand splints for a short time each day to prevent further contractures of his wrists, hands, and fingers. He also has bilateral fixed AFOs. Impairments include decreased vital capacity with a weak cough, limitations in range of motion of extremity joints, global decreased strength, hypotonia, developing scoliosis, and pain in his lumbar spine and both hips. He is unable to shift his weight front to back and side to side while seated in his wheelchair. His multidisciplinary team consists of a pediatrician, physiatrist, orthopedic surgeon, school physical therapist, and home physical therapists. His physical therapists fabricated his orthoses, assisted in the selection of his power chair, and have provided appropriate advice for home adaptation. His frequent colds often develop into bronchitis. Significant medical history includes two femoral fractures. Most recently, he fractured the left mid-femur during a transfer in a makeshift lift from his wheelchair to the above-ground pool in his backyard. Medications include calcium and a stool softener. He is not taking any glucocorticoids due to his parents' concern of further weight gain and bone density loss. His mother does not work and is able to care for his needs. When he does not drive his wheelchair home, she picks him up from school and helps him complete his homework. This appears to be a close-knit family 
but he frequently expresses concern about the burden he presents to his parents and other family members and is worried about his own longevity. The home physical therapist currently sees him twice a week for 45-minute sessions, emphasizing community and home mobility and assistive technology access. So first things first, let's focus on the age of the patient. The patient in this case is 12 years old. Just based on this, we know that he is probably in one of the later stages of DMD. There are five stages, pre-symptomatic, early ambulatory, late ambulatory, early non-ambulatory, and late non-ambulatory. During the ambulatory stage, we usually see the Gower sign first. Loss of standing from the floor due to decreasing anti-gravity extension, loss of stair ambulation, loss of standing from a chair, and finally loss of ambulation. Think about some things that may be important to consider in terms of goals, interventions, and education. A few listed in the book include maximize safe participation and function at home and in the community, optimize positioning throughout the day and night to minimize contractures, improve or maintain lower extremity strength, range of motion, and endurance, maintain respiratory status, optimize transfers to and from the wheelchair, bathing area, and toilet, progress standing tolerance and ambulation with and without assistive devices, maximize safe and functional independence, and promote self-advocacy. Some interventions that could be considered include practicing negotiating his wheelchair throughout tight spaces, over ramps, into and out of the home, van and bus, practice safe and effective transfers into and out of the family pool specifically for this case, review strengthening, range of motion, and respiratory training taught during physical therapy and integrate into a home program, weight shifting in his wheelchair and sitting balance at the edge of the bed, promote self-advocacy in daily tasks and activities and instructing family members and caregivers in activities such as range of motion, transfers, and proper transportation techniques. Exercise recommendations for DMD include age-appropriate recreational activities as opposed to strength training and concentric low load versus high eccentric load exercises. Clinical pearl here, no eccentric loading in DMD. The biggest thing to remember is stay submaximal with your exercises. Remember, no change in strength in this population should be considered a positive thing. Balance activity with rest and definitely don't overdo it. Rest period should be greater than or equal to the exercise period. One should also incorporate balance and coordination skills, and the activities should be fun and promote self-esteem and social skills. There was an RCT cited in this case study book that supported the use of assistive bicycle exercising of the legs and arms to delay the progressive weakness and functional losses associated with DMD. They talk about this in the book. They reference that RCT right in the end there before you get to the evidence-based recommendations. Once walking ceases, you have all the problems associated with weakness, contractures, scoliosis, and respiratory issues like this child in this case study is presenting with. With DMD, stretching is a key intervention, specifically stretching of the heel cords, hamstrings, hip flexors, and hip abductors for the lower extremities. And then you have the elbows, forearms, wrists, hands, and fingers for the upper extremities. 
Active stretching is preferred, but active assist with light traction is helpful too. You don't want to overstretch because the muscle is prone to micro tears. Often night braces are recommended as well as knee immobilizers. Let's review some precautions. These are extremely important with DMD. We've talked about them before, but they are definitely important to review. No resisted or forceful range of motion to the extremities or trunk due to a high fracture risk and damage to muscles. The patient could have pain, weakness, and fatigue. Provide assistance as needed with weight-bearing activities required during transfers to decrease the risk for fall or injury, and make sure to closely monitor the skin while the patient is wearing orthotics. Some complications that may interfere with physical therapy include patient discomfort with AFOs and prolonged positioning and patient and parent anxiety regarding potential fractures. There are many outcome measures that help to predict the loss of ambulation and functional skills. Using the 10-meter walk test and calculating the rates between consecutive sessions in the 10-meter walk test every four to six months is extremely important in order to detect the probability of future ambulation limitations in boys with DMD. In Campbell, it states, 10-meter walk run time that is greater than nine seconds and the inability to rise from the floor predict loss of ambulation within two years, and a 10-meter time of more than 12 seconds predicts loss of ambulation within one year. There are many more listed in the CINRG Natural History Study, How Do We Predict Loss of Ambulation? There are also a few good visuals that are provided by MedBridge in their lectures on DMD that are helpful to know when a child loses a skill first. Loss of ambulation has a huge impact on families and there are a lot of considerations. So being able to predict this in advance helps us get equipment ordered, make home modifications, set up transportation, train on transfers and prep the school. We did post a few weeks ago on Instagram that has the different stages, um, like Sheila had talked about before, of what happens first, what you lose first. So definitely bookmark that for future studying. While these are not necessarily related to the specific case, it's good to be aware of these outcome measures and values. Let's go over some evidence-based recommendations. The use of systemic glucocorticoids prolongs ambulation and quality of life in individuals with DMD. This has grade B evidence. Scores on the EGAN classification scale can predict the need for ventilatory support and ongoing loss of function in the DMD population. This has grade B evidence. Assisted bicycle exercise of the legs and arms delays the progressive weakness and functional loss characteristic of DMD disease progression. This has grade B evidence. The case study chapter goes over the study that found the information on assistive bicycling, like Sarah had mentioned earlier in this episode. Signs of DMD include Gower sign, weakness, coordination problems, clumsiness, and pseudohypertrophy of the calf muscles. What you might see clinically is delayed motor development, abnormal walking, difficulty running, difficulties climbing stairs, and getting up from the floor. You may also see frequent falling. It is common to see increased lumbar lordosis with walking, a waddling gait pattern, and toe walking to stabilize the knee. If doing a biopsy, you would see an increase in type 1 tissue, connective tissue, and fat. Make sure that you're aware of the signs and symptoms in case you get a question on the exam that asks you to identify what might be wrong with a patient. Well, that's it for this week. 
Make sure to go back and listen to episode 12 of season one if you want more information. That is the episode that we reviewed muscular dystrophies from the Campbell episode. So make sure to go back and check that out. And tune in next week as we interview a therapist from the early intervention setting and review some additional case studies. Happy studying. Hey, listeners, we have an ask of you. Between reading and rereading resources, reaching out to content experts, and reviewing our material, this podcast takes time, effort, and resources to share it with you every week. We are humbled and grateful for the listener and affiliate interest over the past several months and the scores of messages received letting us know that this podcast has incrementally improved their test prep has been inspiring. Special thanks to the community for engaging and interacting with the show. We want to keep the podcast focused on content that informs, prepares, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support. We've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. If pushing pediatrics is a part of your day or week and you love what we're doing, please visit the link in any of our episode guides and support us any way you can today. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next time. And remember, you totally got it.